we are at a major tipping point. I want you to picture it like a, like a seesaw. We've been at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's two and a half years in, which means he's only got six months left. And the major tipping point in Mark's very fast gospel, what's his favorite word, church? Immediately. Immediately. It's a quick overview. It's kind of like, now I'm going to age myself. Anybody remember the old TV show Dragnet? Um, and, and, and the officer would say, just the facts, right? Mark's giving you just the scaled down facts of who, this is his key, don't forget this, of who Jesus is, the identity of the servant king. And he opens his gospel with the cat out of the bag. He said, this is the good news of Jesus, who is the Messiah, the king, the son of the living God. Okay, so I'm going to open my gospel, my good news to you Roman Gentiles, because that's who he wrote to, and I'm going to tell you who he is. But here's what you got to know. Nobody else got that. So as I'm going through my, my narrative of, of, this is really the story, the historical account of what, of the conclusions everybody else came to as to this man's identity. And more specifically, the conclusions of his disciples and how they got there. Did they get there quickly, immediately? No. <laughs> One of the sermons a few weeks ago was entitled Slow Learners. And boy, were they. And you're going to see even more of that today. They were slow learners. Um, they didn't get, they got one thing right and the next two things wrong. They were one step forward, two steps back. Peter's motto, who is the source for Mark's information, his motto in life was ready, fire, aim. Know anybody like that? You're listening to one right now, <laughs> if you don't. So here we are, we, we, we come to the pinnacle, and it really marks the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry in the sense that once his men figure out and nail down who he is, it's time to head to Jerusalem. It's no longer about the crowds. It's about thinning the crowds by telling the truth. Um, even some of his own men, one specifically. Because he's got a mission. And even though everybody around him either can't or won't comprehend that mission, it does not dissuade him. Peter comes out with the major confession, and I would say it's the, it's the peak of Mark's gospel. Who do, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You are the King, the Son of the living God. And in a verse later, Jesus is calling him Satan. <laughs> Once they find out who Jesus is, Jesus says, okay, you got it. Finally, you caught up with Mark 1.1. You know who I am. Now let me tell you what I'm here to do. You ever get a preconceived idea and have it literally blown up in your face and you don't know what to do with that or where to go? They had this preconceived idea that Jesus, and it was true, he was the Messiah, the king, but they thought that this king was going to come and establish at that time this earthly kingdom. He was going to just beat the Romans up and put them out of power, and he's going to rule the whole world from a throne in Jerusalem. And what's going to happen if you're one of his 12 cabinet members? You're going to get a pretty cush job, right? 
That's what they're thinking. And Jesus says, once you figured out who I am, okay, fellas, you're right. I am the Messiah. Don't tell anybody. But I am going to tell you very plainly now, no parables. Here's the plan. And you could just imagine the excitement. Because he's kind of not said much about the future with these fellas. Here's the plan. You ready? Write it down. I'm going to Jerusalem for this next Passover. I'm going to be rejected by the leaders. And I'm going to be crucified. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. And their whole world, in one verse, came crashing down. I think they all had the same thought as Peter. Peter was just a spokesman. Peter literally takes Jesus by the arm and turns him around and walks a few steps away and says, not happening. And you need to stop talking like that. And Jesus jerks his arm away from Peter, turns his back on Peter symbolically, which is a grave disrespect, and says to the rest of the disciples, get behind me, Satan. He doesn't even look at Peter when he says it. He says, you have no taste for the things of God. You know how I like to say around here, say ouch or amen? I think Peter said ouch. And they're all sitting there scratching their head like, now what? Okay, you've told us who you are and what you're here to do, which does not fit our plans for God. That's not what God's supposed to do. You ever had one of those moments in your life? If not, put your seatbelt on, it's coming. God, you can't do that. How could you? And then you fill in that blank. God loves breaking out of boxes that we put him in. So here they are, this horrible to them, horrible news, this sharp rebuke of Peter's statement. Not Peter himself, but the statement. Now what? Look at verse 34. I want you to get a feel for where we pick it up today. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them. So apparently there's other people around that kind of giving Jesus a little bit of space because could, they could see there's some heated stuff going on with the guys. They don't want to be in that. Can you get the feel of that? So right on the heels of Peter, Jesus addressing Satan's voice through Peter, no explanation. No, come here, Peter, I really do love you. Nothing. He lifts his hands and says, everybody gather around. And they come in, probably tentatively. And here's what he says. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? Cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, what's your price? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory 
of his father with the holy angels. Father, I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of this word. I pray that today of all days, the pinnacle of Mark's gospel, that Lord, your spirit would clearly speak through this servant. May you be glorified. May the saints be edified. And may sinners fall under inextricable conviction and flee to the cross of Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. I love this statement by John MacArthur. He says this, when we come to chapter 8, verses 34 to 38, we really come to the diamond for which the rest of the gospel is the setting. This jewel of the gospel of Mark is here. If you could only hear one message in the gospel of Mark, this would perhaps be the most important one that you could ever hear because it is the pinnacle of our Lord's teaching with regard to inviting sinners to come to him. To put it another way, it doesn't get any better than this. But remember, he is the king of an upside down kingdom and what's up is down and what's down is up. Isn't it? So what looks like bad news is the best news. And what seems like the best news is really bad news on our side of the ledger. At the end of the day, we must agree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's a far cry from Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, isn't it? But this is the true gospel. I want you to hear the invitation from the servant king's lips himself. Number one, I want you to see in verse 34 that Jesus reveals a pattern. Now, do let, I do want to tell you this. I was taught in my homiletics course that your points should all be equal in length. They are not today. The majority of our teaching today is going to come out of verse 34. And those other two points will go rather quickly. Uh, so number one is I want you to see that Jesus reveals a pattern. So let me remind you that not everyone who claims to be a Christian can truly be called a disciple of Jesus. Isn't that true? Yes. So those who would be his disciples, he gives to them four requirements that must be met in order to be a true follower of his. And I want to share those with you today. And that's the bulk of the proclamation of God's word today. And the others are just kind of things that make sense if verse 34 is valid. And I have staked my eternity on the fact that it is. Don't miss this. He calls the crowd to himself physically. And what do they do? They come. That is an object lesson of what he's about to say. Look at his first opening line as he gathers the crowd and by calling them to himself. Whoever desires to what? Come after me. Which is another way of saying whoever answers the call. 
right? You were over there. I called to you and you did what? You came to me. Um, that's the first one. Number one is you have to come. You have to have this desire to come after him. This is an invitation in Jesus' words. His, his fellows, the 12, they surely remembered when he first called them over two years ago. And they left, as Peter would remind us later, they left everything to follow him. Their jobs, their boats, their families. They gave it all up to follow him. But again, remember, they had a different idea than Jesus did. But to the rest of the crowd, don't forget, he's, he's got his disciples there, but everybody else he calls to them. This was a call to, to the new birth. And I think in that crowd was also... Um, those that were his enemies, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders. I think you had the committed, which was his disciples. You had the curious, which was the, the crowd. And then you had those who were his stated enemies, who, who only had a vision of this man's death. And you know what? I... I, I they were contrary to the kingdom. I think those three people, those three people are represented in this room right now. There's some of you, and they're not enough, who are the committed. There's some that's the curious crowd. And there are some people in this room who are contrary to the kingdom. You know it, and God knows it. And some of us know it as well. But this is Jesus' invitation to come to him. To come after him, literally, it's a beautiful word in the Greek language. It literally means walk with me and take, walk with me on the same road that I am walking on. Do life together. We call our little groups their DLT groups, doing life together groups. Do life with me. It is, a, it is a rabbinic call to walk in the dust of the rabbi. Join me. But if you want to walk with me, you got to know it's going to cost something. There is no crown without a cross. And you need to know what that means. It was a call for them to turn their backs on everything else and to go after Jesus with everything that they were. Being born again, being regenerated from the inside out, or However we want to describe it, we have multiple terms and beautiful pictures to describe this fact. But it, I want to say this. It's far more than praying a prayer at an old-fashioned altar. It's more than that. True salvation is about a radical commitment to leave the old life behind and to follow Jesus into a new and a very different life. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, he would, he would explain it as becoming a new kind of creation. You're being remade. If anyone be in Christ, he is a creation of a new category. The old has passed away and everything is becoming new. Amen? True salvation However, don't, don't get this wrong, is not some form of easy believism. I fear that we have distilled the gospel down to nodding our head and saying, uh-huh, at a few key points, and say, okay, God bless you, brother. We're going to get you wet, and welcome to the family. 
I've said this before many times, I can baptize you till every fish in Lake Wildwood knows you on a first name basis. And you can go down a wet center and come up a wet center unless God has changed your heart. He said, how do I know that? Because you're following him. And that's the point of this whole invitation. The invitation is not get your fire insurance and live like hell and expect to not end up there when you die. That's a lie. The invitation is, it's coming. It's time to die to who you were so that you can live to what God intends you to be. It reminds me of the seasons I've had with each of my sons except for Jack. Sam, I was thinking about this the other day when Jack and I were hunting together. Makes me a little nervous with him carrying a rifle behind me in the woods. But he's been well trained. That I've got one more shot at welcoming a son into the world of men. Ben's been called, you've been called, Zach has been called, Paul has been called by me and welcomed into the world of men. And one of the things I've said to every one of these men around the age of 13 is I say to them, the child in you must die so that the man in you can live. And I'll put it to all of us this way in this initiation. If we're going to come after him, the sinner in you must die so that the saint in you might live. Amen? It's not just nodding your head at a few key points. It's true change that makes such a radical difference in your life. You get a whole new set of spiritual taste buds. Sin, it don't taste good anymore. Your interests and your commitments, they all change. Something has happened. When you come to Jesus Christ and you're truly saying, listen, you, you will want to follow him. And where Jesus is, that's where you desire to be. Where he leads me, I will follow no what? Turning back. It's like when you, some that have gotten COVID, I've got some friends that after they got COVID, their, their taste buds literally changed. Have you heard of that? Right? I was hoping my wife would like dill pickles after COVID, but she still does not like them. <laughs> but, but it's true. I met, I met some people. I got a friend of mine, a fellow pastor friend of mine. Like, uh, he loved tomatoes. And now he can't, he can't stand them. Can't even stand the smell of them. Like something has chemically changed what he likes and what he dislikes. Listen to me, listen to me. The call to come after Jesus, to walk in his dust, to fellowship with him, to do life together with Jesus, it changes your tastes. And if it does not, you have just said words. You have not had the word come into your life and change you from the inside out. You are self-deceived. And it is a fearful place to be today. So come after me. To the lost person, it is a call to be saved, to be rescued from yourself. And I just have a simple question. Are you saved today? Are you born again? Has there been an end? Have you died yet? While you yet live? You say, I don't know. Well, if it's happened to you, you know. 
You know, it's, it's a change. And don't, don't try to fake it. Like, well, I'm supposed to be changed. The pastor said I'm supposed to change. I'm supposed to like things I don't like. So I'm going to start eating asparagus. You know, but, but we, we say, oh, that's so silly. But we do it spiritually, don't we? Well, I want, I want to be a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. So I'm going to change myself. Good luck with that. I walked that road for a long time in my life. Some of you have too. How's that work out? Not so good. That's right, Dale. Are you saved? To the saved person, to the person who is born again, are you committed? What's holding you back? Are you, are you radically trusting and following Jesus today? I came across this quote. It just hit me between the eyes and said this because it's really what this story is about with these dim-witted disciples. It's because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They were smart guys. Here's what he said. He said, a wrong view of Messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. Isn't that interesting? Some of you are following a Jesus who isn't. We got to get Jesus right before Jesus can get us right. Amen. Amen? The God of your understanding, all he can do is take you by the hand and lead you straight to hell. The God revealed in the 66 books of Holy Scripture, he will bring you to a definite, violent, bloody end to who you are and make you into somebody else. And your spiritual taste buds will change. Come after me. That's the first step in the pattern. And by the way, you say, I have no desire. That's right. You got to get that from him. But I want to tell you today, when you die and you stand before this just judge, you are not going to be able to plead to him, well, you never called me. Because he's calling today. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Number two. You don't just need to show up and answer that call. When you do, you need to know there's some things embedded into coming after him. And here's the first one. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself. I'm here. Let me give you my resume. I don't need your resume. I need the end of you. I need you to come to the end of yourself. I need you to say no to you and not just this one time for the rest of your life. This phrase literally means to completely disown, to divorce, to utterly separate oneself from someone else. It's interesting. It's in the aorist imperfect and, and, and us Greek nerds, we call that the, the Nike tense. It's the just do it tense and just do it now. There's a sense of urgency to it, right? Right now, now, deny yourself. Just do it. Disown yourself. Disown the rights to your life. Disown your future. Disown where you're going for lunch today because you no longer belong to yourself. And it's an intensified use of the word. There's, there's a little prefix that's put in front of the word to deny that only makes it tremendously stronger. So this is almost a violent word saying right now, you come to me right now, say goodbye to who you were. It's not about you anymore. 
By the way, I just want to say this. You know what would change, radically change every family in this room tonight, this morning? When you, if you went home this week and everybody learned to say no to themselves. Amen? Learn to say no to you. And yes to a king who subdues rebellious hearts. It changes everything, but we've got to deny ourselves. This is kind of sad or hard, but this intensified use of this word deny is the same word used in Matthew 26, 34, where it says that Peter denied knowing Jesus. He didn't just say, oh, I'm sorry, madam, I think you're mistaken. He cussed a blue streak and said, I don't know the man. Denying self implies that I stop listening to my own voice. I stop leaning on my own power and I stop trying to fulfill my own will and wishes. When I truly deny myself, I have no will but his will. I have no plans but his plans. I have no wants but what he wants for me. When I deny myself, I give up all my rights and I relinquish all control of my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, he's the only safe one to relinquish that control to. What are we thinking? I live out 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. What? Know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price, and because you are, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. We're owned, and that's a good thing. And on the other hand, Jesus wants us to know that without him, how much can we get done? Nothing. Jot it down. John 15, 5. Without me, you can do nothing. That was Sally Clay's favorite verse, wasn't it, Mike? I can never read that and not, not see her face. Can't wait to see it again. Listen, he demands absolute control of every area of our life. He calls on us to disown our life and give him the reins of our life. And this phrase suggests a once-for-all action. We are to deny ourselves and forget about us. Hit the pause button. Was Peter denying himself when he pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, you've got to stop talking like that. That's not what we're doing. No. He was telling Jesus, you deny your plans because we got different plans. Just like Satan did when Jesus started in the temptation in the wilderness. Y'all seeing it? I think Jesus is talking to the crowd, but I, I promise you, he's looking Peter right between the eyes. And he's looking some of you in the eyes too. So I, I got to close this section out because here it is. When's the last time you said no to you? Like, like literally, write it down on your paper or write something that's going to remind you of it. When's the last time you said no to you? I remember only because of the specificity of it this week. And I just said, no, I'm not doing it. One of my favorite freeing words in a Christian life is this, or phrases, I don't have to. A young man I discipled years ago in Florida put it this way. He said, that old man is dead. 
I said no to him a long time ago, and I don't, I don't listen to the voice of a dead man. I follow the voice of a risen man. Amen? Wow. Here's a third one. Take up your cross. Okay, so if you want to come do life with me and walk in my dust and walk my road, uh, here's what you got to do. First thing is, you got to come to the end of yourself, say no to you, divorce yourself, divorce yourself of your ideas, divorce yourself of your will, divorce yourself of your sin. Oh man, that's pretty harsh. Does the news get better? Yeah, take up your cross. Wow, remember, he's the king of the upside down kingdom. You with me? This is upside down. And you know why they can't get it? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit who's kind of like the code breaker for the upside down kingdom. It's like Latin verbs. Uh, William, Latin verbs made no sense to me until I saw the code at the end with the endings. And then when I saw the code and the endings and learned how to decipher them, I'm like, it's brilliant. It's actually beautiful, right? But it's upside down. Jesus is the king of the upside down kingdom. The, here's good news. Divorce yourself and your ideas. Here's better news. Take up your cross. Now, historians tell us, check this out, that over 30,000 people were crucified by the Romans during Jesus' lifetime. Ponder that. 30,000. So every person who heard Jesus say these words knew what he was saying to them. Literally, when he said, take up your cross, I am sure that flashes of a victim being crucified came to their mind. You with me? They knew what that meant. On that day, a cross was not a piece of jewelry. It was, a, it was a, 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 an instrument of horrific, prolonged torture and ultimately death. When a man took up a cross, it was the beginning of a death march. Josephus said, you knew one thing about a man carrying a cross outside the city. You knew he wasn't coming back. And when he did carry his cross, took up the cross, he carried the instrument of his own death on his shoulders. Most of the time it was the cross beam. Sometimes it was the whole thing. And he, would, he was required to carry the instrument of his death. So people knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. But sadly, that message today has become clouded. Some people think that the burdens of life are a cross to bear. Let me say something. Your spouse is not your cross. Your, your idiot boss is not your cross. Your wonderful teenagers are not your cross to bear. There's one cross to bear, and he bore it for us. It said, walk in my dust, do what I do. It's time to die. When Jesus tells his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, he's calling us to die to ourselves. He's calling us to commit to a lifestyle of living death. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, which is an interesting word, it means, and yet somehow, <laughs> I live. But it's not me. It's Christ who lives in me. Right? And loved me and gave himself up for me. He's calling us to willingly bear the shame. 
And by the way, this phrase also suggests that it's a once for all action. You're getting the theme here? Once for all, come to me. Once for all, divorce yourself. Say goodbye to your plans. Once for all, die. Take up that daily instrument of death. But know that as you take up that cross and never lay it down, that you are doing what I have done. Take up your cross. Someone said it this way as I was reading this week. I, I'll just read it to you. He said, there are no cheap seats in the kingdom. But there is a high price to pay for being a genuine disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just ask the Apostle Paul. And then he says this, follow me. Follow me. That's number four. So, so he calls them to them initially, right? You have to have this desire, but then you have to carry it out. You have to get to the follow me part. How? I want to. I want to follow you, but how? The how is the, the middle two points. You deny yourself and you take up a cross. Listen. When there's no more plans on your day timer and there's nothing but death in your past, all you have is a path to walk with your king. What's he saying? He's saying to this crowd, y'all need to get some freedom. You all are bound by the chains of your own ideas and your own desires. And the invitation says, come and die because only then can you truly follow me. Follow me. A true disciple of Jesus turns his back on his self and his old life. Takes up the cross. He lays everything down for the glory of the Lord. The true disciple takes his place behind the Lord and follows him wherever he leads. The true disciple walks in total obedience and submission. And again, this is an interesting word. This phrase, follow me, is, uh, indicates an ongoing action. Not, not just follow me right now. Follow me forever. Let's, let's do eternity together. We like to say doing life together. Jesus is saying let's do eternal life together. Follow me all the way home. Are we really committed? Are we really following? When he called those first four disciples, they were fishermen. He said, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. He said, how do I know I'm following? You're fishing. If you're not fishing, you're not following. Right? It's a commitment. Genuine salvation is by faith through grace alone, but it produces a drastic change in the life of all who receive it. Then, real quick, Jesus shares a paradox. What is a paradox? A paradox is a statement that seems contradictory, but yet it is still true. Look at verse 34. Or, or 35, excuse me. For or because, because <laughs> he knows they're going to be struggling with that um, denying self and the whole cross thing. Not a good image. By the way, that's not how you build a following. It's how you destroy one. And that was his plan. He says, because whoever, there's that same word desires, right? Whoever desires come after me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. So what is the paradox? The way to save your life 
is to lose it. Remember, he's the king of the upside down kingdom. You find your life as you give it away. If you believe in having your own way, living life on your own terms and being the master of your own life is more important than surrendering to his kingship. Jesus says, hear me, you lose. You lose. But if you give it up to him, give him total control, you win. You win. Now, from a human perspective, this makes no sense. But from a heavenly perspective, nothing else makes sense. You find your life as you give it away. We've got a foot in both worlds. And nobody's satisfied. We've got some denying and dying to do today. And then this paradox can make sense to us. Reminds me of the legend of the death of Alexander the Great. There's a guy that had everything. They say he wept at the age of 30 because there were no more worlds to conquer. Now what am I going to do? It wasn't just a few years later he was dying of syphilis. Apparently he found something to do. And it cost him his life. Ain't that how Satan works? And he was dying. And if you know anything about syphilis, it makes you crazy. But right before he died, he called his leaders in. They say he had one last request. They said, I want you to bore two holes the sides of my casket. And I want my hands extended through there. And as my body is paraded through the streets, I want to send this vital message. And in a moment of lucidity, he got it, but it was too late. And the message was this, the hands that held everything in life, listen, hold nothing in death. Alexander gained the whole world, but he lost his soul. That paradox holds true today. What are you after? And maybe more importantly, what's after you? What's the worth of your soul? Verse 27, what will man give in exchange for his soul? How much is your life worth? It's not too late to change. It's not too late to come to your senses and to follow Jesus. In about 1000 AD, the tomb of Charlemagne, the king of the Franks was opened. And the great king had been dead for about 180 years by then. When they opened his tomb, they found great treasure, but they also encountered an odd yet amazing sight. They saw the skeleton of Charlemagne sitting on the throne with a crown still on the skull, and a bony hand of the skeleton was a copy of the Gospels. And one bony finger was pointing to this very text, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, Charlemagne was a great king, but in the end, how much did that matter? When it came time for him to die, he left his robes, his riches, and his royalty behind, and he went out into eternity to meet his God. And so will you.
Lastly, Jesus reminds us of a promise. It's not the kind of promise you want to hang on to, though. It's kind of a negative promise. But look what he says. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That word ashamed here means unwilling or restrained because of fear of shame, ridicule, and disapproval. What's the price of our soul? This promise is true. You see, we mustn't lose the context here. Why would Peter take Jesus and turn him around and walk away from the disciples and rebuke him? Because <coughs> he was ashamed at Jesus' mission. He was ashamed. He said, that's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. I'm looking for a post and a position. And he got one. An upside down cross is how Peter dies. It is said that when Peter was about to be executed for the second time, first time he escaped through the miraculous intervention of an angel. That's <laughs> a great account. God said, no, it's not yet. But when it does come time, and it was very shortly after Paul was executed, it's interesting to me that all the apostles, with one exception, uh, were all executed within a few years of each other. And the next generation of church leaders, what we call church fathers, came up. That's a sermon for another day. But as Peter was condemned to die by crucifixion, he made a request. And his request was that he be crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross because he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner as the Lord. Somewhere between that road to Caesarea Philippi and that execution hill outside of Rome, Peter quit being ashamed of Jesus. And when he finally died, two to three days after his being nailed to that cross, the first words he heard were, well done good and faithful servant. How we doing? How we doing? There is a price. There are no cheap seats. And I believe God has spoken to us today. We've got some denying to do. And some of us just need to die to who we were. Start living to who we are. Remember who Maybe you're here today and you know, preacher, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I've ever been born again. Today's your day. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Believe the gospel. Say no to yourself. 
you let God take you back to a cross, bring an end to yourself, and resurrect you a brand new being on the inside. And he'll change your life forever. I want you to stand with me, and I want to invite you to respond to God's word. There's an old-fashioned altar up here. You need to come and pray. Listen, there ain't no easier place in the world to walk for Jesus than in this building. You can't, and I'm not saying you have to, but there's nothing like getting on your knees. You know why, you know why people knelt before kings? You know why? Because it exposed the back of their neck in helpless humility. Kneeling before a king was saying, there's my neck. I'm yours. I have died to myself. I've said no to me. And if you want my life, if you want to take my life, you can because I am yours, whatever you want. That's why we kneel. The very act of kneeling is saying to the Lord, here's my neck. I'm yours. Whatever you want for me is what I want. I've said no to me. I've died. And there's a new me. If that's not you, you come this morning. If it is you, but you've got some denying of self to do, come. I'm gonna, you come as I'm praying and we're going to sing a song. But don't put it off. This opportunity may never present itself to you again. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Thanking you for a call to come and walk the same road as Jesus. And thanking you for the cost of that call. The denial of self, the 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 death, the crucifixion to, to constantly carry along with us the reminder of who we were, not who we are. And the ability to follow our King. To walk in His footsteps. To feel His presence, His approval his acceptance as he reminds us who we are. Let us be wise today in Jesus' name. God speak into your heart. You seek his face and no one else. Let's sing together.